we're getting in the short rows of 1 Corinthians because 1 Corinthians 15, this remarkable 58 verses of this chapter, uh, really is the climax to, to Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, you've probably noticed from your studies of Paul before, uh, he, he tends to do uh, greetings at the end, personal remarks at the end. So chapter 16 really is just some personal remarks, important stuff. Um, and maybe we'll bleed over into a little bit of chapter 16 today. But he finishes the body of um, his letter proper when he finishes chapter 15. And, uh, you know, he's making his case for resurrection, for the fact that resurrection happens. It happened with Jesus. Uh, Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection, which means we are the rest of the harvest. Uh, there will come a time when we will participate in the resurrection of the body. Uh, he's made his argument for resurrection because, again, Greeks by nature, uh, contrary to Jews by nature, Greeks by nature just do not accept the concept of resurrection of the body. They're not a very bodily, material um, religious people historically. When you think about the philosophies of Plato and Socrates and all that, they're, they're very spiritual, but just not very, not very bodily or physical. Uh, and Paul, being a good Jew, that's also in the Greco-Roman world, is both, both spiritual and bodily. So what he's doing, he's making his argument for resurrection of the body, making his argument from the resurrection of Jesus' body to the resurrection of our body. He finishes the chapter. We start at verse 50. He finishes the chapter by talking about that period at the end of history when resurrection of the body occurs. That period at the end of history uh, when uh, your spirits that are residing, kept uh, in heaven, uh, reunite with your body, and you end up with a resurrection body like Jesus had for those 40 days uh, that he was here on earth post, -res post his resurrection. Um, to understand Christianity, and again, this is very, very different from Eastern religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, is very, very different from uh, uh, Greco-Roman religions, you know, all the Zeus, Jupiter, all that stuff. Um, to understand Christianity and Judaism, uh, you have to understand the importance of creation, the importance of the body, the importance of the physical world. Um, God is not just interested in saving your souls. Now, certainly he will save your soul, but he won't save your spirit. He won't save your body. He wants to save creation. Uh, he wants to redeem all of creation. You've read Romans chapter 8, but beyond that, you've read the Hebrew Bible. You've read the prophecies of Isaiah and people like that. Um, the, the redemptive work of God in Christ is not just a small redemptive work. So it's not just spiritual. So in order to comprehend Judaism and Christianity, you've got to understand the importance of the, 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 the physicality of God's creation. He created it. He called creation good. Then it fell, um, and now he's in the process of reclaiming it. Uh, and one day he will completely reclaim it. So to understand Judaism and Christianity, you've got to understand the emphasis on the material world, and you've got to understand the emphasis... On, um, on the fact that uh, this is a history rooted in religion. Uh, 
or history is a religion rooted in history, I should say. In other words, think about it a minute. We're all about that there was a particular week in the month of April, either in 30 or 33 AD, that changed everything. Uh, that's why, you know, when you look at the Hebrew Bible, you got all those genealogies, all those records of history. Um, not Creation is important to God, which means history is important to God. Uh, again, we're not just a, a spiritual faith. You know, um, when someone tells me they're spiritual but not religious, all sorts of red flags go up in my mind. All sorts of red flags go up in my mind. Uh, but in Christianity, we're very much based in, in historic reality. You saw that at the beginning of chapter 15, where, where Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ, all the people he appeared to. He appeared to 500 people at one time. You can go ask those people about their encounter of the risen Christ. Um, so that's why in the Jewish Christian tradition, uh, we are a text-based religion. Uh, you ever read the first gospel of Zeus? There isn't such out there. We have a Bible. And by the way, something else that's unique about us is a hymn book. We are a singing religion based on text. You know, if you're Jewish, what do you do to train for your bar mitzvah? You, you prepare to read some of the Hebrew text in synagogue. So we are text-based uh, faith based on happenings in history uh, where God is at work redeeming the human race, redeeming creation. So because we're based on history, um, we're going somewhere. Uh, if you ever read the book by Cahill, it's really popular several decades ago now, called The Gift of the Jews. Uh, the point of he tries to make in that book is we, all, we owe a lot to the Jewish faith. Western civilization owes a lot to the Jewish faith. But one of the main things that Jewish faith that we owe to the Jewish faith is that history is linear. It started at point A. It, it, we're in point B now, and point C will come. In other words, we're not like the Eastern religions, uh, you know, that believes in reincarnation. Everything just keeps going around and around and around and around. We, we're, we're on a journey. Uh, that's why you start with Adam and Eve and you end with Genesis chapter 22. We're on a journey. So all of this is basic Jewish Christian stuff that uh, um, the spiritual crowd in the world, you know, when, 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 the, when the Beatles are doing transcendental meditation, they didn't get any of this. Uh, they were just being spiritual. Uh, but we are uh, spiritual in a very unique way. We are rooted in history. We have a text. We can look back to events in history where there's David and Saul and Isaiah and the first destruction of Jerusalem, the second destruction of Jerusalem. We're rooted in history. We can look back at history and we can look forward to history. We're going somewhere. Uh, we're going somewhere. So what you're at, where, where Paul climaxes in verse 15, is he's going to talk about that period in history now when the resurrection of our bodies will happen. And so he's going to paint a picture uh, of the end, capital E. But again, when you say end, you got to step away from Hollywood for just a little bit. The Bible never teaches the end of the world. No such language in the Bible. There's no teaching of the end of the world in the Bible. Um, you know that if you've been in a traditional church for any amount of time. You, you sing the Gloria Patri sometimes. Uh, 
We uh, don't do it as often as we used to. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was in the beginning is now. What's the next phrase? Ever shall be. What's the next phrase? World without end. Amen. We have never believed in the end of the world. We believe there'll come a time when the world will be transformed. We believe there'll come a time when the world will be rejuvenated, regenerated, refreshed. Uh, and these words are actually found in Scripture. So that's, that's what we're looking toward. You, every time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you, you acknowledge that, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? On earth. So your body in this earth is not destined for the trash heap as you become more and more spiritual. Again, that's Hinduism, that's Buddhism, that's Plato, that's Socrates. But in the Jewish Christian faith, uh, your body in this world is destined for something far greater. Uh, anyway, Paul's going to paint the picture. Um, one of the many places in the Scriptures, one of the many places in the Scriptures where the picture of the end is painted. So, uh, here's what life is going to look like when our resurrection of our bodies occur. And by the way, he's, he's kind of answering one question here. When that, when that point comes in history and um, Christ finishes his work and there's the resurrection of the body, what happens to those who haven't died yet? You know, I'm still using my body. I haven't laid it aside to be resurrected yet. So that's a question. It might not have worried you this morning, but evidently it was worrying some of the people in Corinth. So Paul's going to answer that question. What happens to those who are still alive when the end comes? Because he's clear, those who are dead, the bodies will be resurrected. Uh, what, 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 what will happen to those who are alive? He's sort of specifically answering that question in this text. So look at verse 15. Chapter 15, 1 Corinthians. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Now, you need to be a little bit careful at that point. Again, flesh and blood as we have it and experience it now will not inherit the kingdom of God. But that doesn't mean there'll be no flesh and blood in the kingdom of God. Again, Paul's Jewish. He's not Platonic. He's not a disciple of Socrates. So transformed, rejuvenated, regenerated, redone, resurrected... Flesh and body is what will participate in the kingdom. But this flesh and body that we're dealing, flesh and body that we're dealing with now, it, it will not inherit. Something has to happen to this body that we've got for it to inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable, that's the body we have now, put on the imperishable. That's the, the state, the body, the condition we'll have at some point. Verse 51, behold, I tell you a mystery. And again, you need to understand the word mystery in a biblical sense, not in a Hollywood sense. The word mystery is very clear in the New Testament, and some translations even say secret, which makes it maybe a little more confusing. But whether you say mystery or secret, what, 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 what the New Testament is talking about is something that was hidden but is revealed now. Paul's talking about it, so it's not that much of a mystery anymore. But he's talking about something that, had, that was hidden uh, at least to the extent that Paul's going to discuss it. It was hidden somewhat throughout the ages, uh, but um, is being revealed, and that's the work of Christ. 
It was revealed in Christ. So it's a mystery, but don't think that's something you can't know or something you've got to investigate. It's just something that's in the process of being revealed. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. And you've already seen it in 1 Corinthians. Sleep is a euphemism for death. So he's saying we shall not all die. Because, again, he's answering that question, what about the people who are alive when the resurrection of the body, when the end comes and resurrection of the body happens? But he says we shall not all sleep, we shall not all die, but we shall all be changed. So he's going to say to us that, yeah, at the end of history, when the resurrection of the body occurs, um, those that remain alive at that point will be transformed. They will be changed. Uh, they will they will get to participate. We don't just move to the sidelines and watch everybody who has died participate in the resurrection of the body. Uh, our bodies will be transformed at that point. I think I told you last week I was in a church nursery one time, and on the wall of the nursery they had uh, verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Uh, it takes on a totally different meaning in a nursery setting. Um, but we know what Paul means. You know, not all going to die, but when this time comes, we will all we'll all be changed, transformed. Verse fifty-two. In a moment, and in case you don't know what a moment means, he says, "In the twinkling of an eye." So uh, instantaneously, you know, that's that's just an that's just an example Paul's using of of the quickest thing he can imagine, the twinkling of an eye. So, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Now, again, these are Jewish people. Paul is Jewish. He's basing his faith on Jewish writings. Keep in mind, the only Bible the New Testament church had was what we call Old Testament. Uh, they're in the process of writing what we call the New Testament. Um, so when they say trumpet, what's the instrument they really are talking about? Shofar, that's right. Uh, that ram's horn that plays such a big role in, um, in the Hebrew Bible. And the reason Paul is referencing it here is because, for instance, in places like Isaiah 27 in the Hebrew Bible, uh, the, show, the sounding of the shofar will announce the end of time. But you also know from, from, from what you know about Judaism and Hebrew history, um, the, the shofar, the blowing of the shofar, announces the beginning of the festivals. Uh, the blowing of the shofar announces the beginning of the Sabbath. Uh, archaeologists actually uncovered, you can see it in a museum, uncovered a stone from the second temple that was destroyed by the Romans. And that stone actually says, this is where the trumpeter is to stand, to blow the trumpet from the top of the temple to let you know when Shabbat, when Sabbath is coming. Uh, to this day, there's no shofar sounding, but there is an alarm that goes off in Israel. Uh, let you know when Sabbath is arriving. Actually, the alarm gives you, um, it's an advanced warning that Sabbath is coming. It's a warning that says, get your stuff together, get off the street, quit your work. Uh, I think it's an hour or 30 minutes, and I can't remember, but it's a warning that Sabbath is coming. Because as soon as there's four stars discernible in the evening sky on Friday night, Shabbat has arrived. But anyway, the shofar, shofar historically announced festivals. His, the shofar historically announced the arrival of, of the Sabbath each week. Shofar in Isaiah 27 and other places announces the end, the, the end of history, the, the beginning of the Messianic age. 
that the Jewish faith looked for. So um, Paul talks about this same trumpet, by the way, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But anyway, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised. The dead will be raised imperishable. And we, those of us that are alive at that time, and Paul has, has every conviction that he may very well be alive at that time. We need to have the conviction. We may very well be alive at the time. Uh, obviously, Paul didn't make it, uh, but we might. So he's saying those who are alive when this trumpet is sounded um, will be changed, will be transformed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to uh, pass the saying that is written in the Bible. And again, in the New Testament world, the only Bible they have is what we call Old Testament. Remember, you've got the Old Testament. Then you've got the experiences around Jesus. Then, uh, then you've got the church being formed out of the experiences around Jesus. And then we wrote what became the New Testament. So when Paul is preaching from the Bible, he's preaching uh, Jesus from the Hebrew Bible. And what he quotes here, he's quoting, he's kind of mixed, because again, they're, they're doing scrolls. So he doesn't have his, you know, his iPhone in front of him. He doesn't have his copy of his Bible in front of him. So they, they have to depend on memory when they quote Bible. And what he's doing right here, and your study Bible will tell you this, what he's doing right here, he's quoting uh, from, from Isaiah and Hosea. He's quoting from a, a text that we would call Isaiah 25, and he's quoting from a text uh, in Hosea 13. So he's remembering his scripture. He's remembering the Bible. He's quoting um, to, to give you a Bible text basis for what he's teaching here. And he, 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 he kind of puts them together, and, and he comes up with death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Uh, he's just kind of creating two verses out of the Hebrew Bible uh, to use as a taunt to mock death. Remember, Paul called death the last enemy, but it will eventually be defeated. So Paul is mocking and taunting death at this point. Uh, one thing you may want to notice, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, by the way, victory. You know what the Greek word for victory is? You know what? I'm just, this is your trivia for today. If you win money on Jeopardy, I want part of it. Do you know what the Greek word for victory is? You know it well. Nike. 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 Yeah, you ever wonder why you name shoes Nike? What's a Nike? Yep, yep. That's, that's the Greek word for victory. So it makes a perfect name for, for your running shoes and your athletic shoes. Anyway, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Um, oh, death, where is your sting? I'm hoping some of your translations uh, don't, doesn't repeat the word death, but it gives you another word there in the third line of, of these two scriptures. Instead of, oh, death, where is your sting? I bet some of your translations say, oh, Anybody say Hades? Shame on modern translations. It really should be Hades at that point. Uh, I think the New King, I think King James says Hades, I believe. I, th I know New King James says it. Maybe not Old King James. I think New King James says Hades. Um, I, wish, I wish they would keep it because it gives me another opportunity, uh, just like I did Sunday when we talked about the creed, creedal statement, he descended to hell. Uh, what, what the early church fathers meant 
was he descended to Hades, which is the place of the dead. That's why here, Hades is just, they're helping you out by just saying death. Because they, they're assuming you don't know what Hades is. But what Hades definitely is not is a polite word for hell. Uh, Hades and hell are two totally different concepts in the New Testament. Hades just means death. That's why sometimes Hades is just um, translated death or grave. Now the King James, and this is, leads you to the history of that phrase in the Apostles' Creed, King James in 16... At the beginning of the 1600s, the King James translators translated um, death and the grave as hell. Well, it's not hell. It's Hades. It's Sheol in the Hebrew. becomes Hades in the Greek. It's just the place of the dead, the netherworld. And that's why in most English translations, it's just translated death here in a place like 1 Corinthians 15. So it's just the place of the dead. And we all do believe Jesus went to the place of the dead. Uh, the church never said he went to the fires of hell and, and got toasted for two days. Um, but he went to the place of the dead. So Hades and Sheol were really just the Hebrew way of saying death or the grave. Um, anyway, so that's Paul using two texts from Hosea and Isaiah. And he goes on as he climaxes. Uh, the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. You know, I never under... And Paul talks about that a lot. How the law... I mean, we know the first part of that verse, verse 56. Um, the sting of death is sin. We know that we all die. Paul's very clear on this. The Bible's very clear on this. The reason we die, the reason we corrupt is we're sinful. We're not perfect. If you're perfect, you don't have to worry about death. But because we're not perfect, our body's not perfect, part of the human condition is we, we, we uh, fail, our frailty arrives, and we die. Um, but then the second phrase, and Paul talks about that a lot, but then he also talks about, and the power of sin is the law. Um, for instance, Romans 5, he talks a lot about that. How the law, and by that he means the nomos in the Greek, or Torah, in Hebrew, the Torah, the Torah, the law, the teaching, the Hebrew Bible, um, the law of Moses. He, he makes quite a, a stand, particularly in Romans and elsewhere, that the law, which he loves, he says is great, is wonderful, is a gift from God. He calls it the oracles of God. You know, think all the Moses writings, think of the Ten Commandments. But when he exalts the law, and again, I wish we, that's an, that's an English translation of the Greek law. That's why it'd, it'd be better to translate it because it's Hebrew Torah, which would be instruction or teaching. My guess is you feel differently, I hope, about instruction and teaching than you feel about law. Law just makes us nervous when you say it. <laughs> but uh, it makes it think somebody's going to chase us with a blue light or something, pull us over. But it's just Torah, Torah, the, the, the law, the writings, the instruction of Moses. But Paul makes the case, as wonderful as the Torah, the law of Moses, all that is, uh, as wonderful as it is, he makes the case that it causes us to sin. He makes the case that not only can it not save us, the keeping of the law, not only can it not save us, and by the way, he makes the case it never saved anybody. 
um, including Abraham or Moses. It's wonderful, but it, it, it never saved anybody. It was never meant to save anybody. The keeping of the law, the keeping of the Ten Commandments, the teaching, keeping of the sermon on that never saves anybody, never has saved anybody. And Paul even says, you got to be careful with this stuff because it even can make you sin, which um, I never understood that I had kids. When my kids came along, I, all of a sudden I had these, this epiphany. I knew exactly what Paul was taking, talking about because I never could understand why Paul would say that the, the law of God, the Torah of God, um, the oracles of God that he praises in places like Romans 9, 10, and 11. As a Jew, he would certainly praise it, but he would turn right around and say it, it won't save you, and as a matter of fact, it may make you sin. Well, you know that to be true. Um, you know, if you have a child, that child may not care about those cookies on your counter until you say, do not eat a cookie. <laughs> and guess what the law does? That kid will want that cookie more than that kid wants life itself. We, once you've laid the law down and said, don't do it. So that's what Paul's talking about. The law, the law of Moses, Torah, all of that stuff, Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount, is wonderful, it's great, it's beneficial, it's instructive, but it not only can't save us, it even can cause us to sin. Um, I'm sure I've told you my, my favorite story about my little kid, Caleb, and the cookie jar. Um, Maybe if I didn't tell it, it's worth hearing again. You need to memorize this because, you know, if you have any doubt of the Christian conviction that human beings need Jesus, human beings are broken, human beings need grace, just think about your children. Um, you know, I have two. They're two and a half years separate in age. My daughter is um, the oldest. She's very much like me, which means unless you put me in front of somebody, kind of quiet, reflective, reserved. I'm a rule keeper. I like to follow orders. Um, my son, who's two and a half years younger than my daughter, is like my wife. Uh, he's more into noise and drama and people. And, you know, I go home and rest after I'm around a bunch of people. My wife goes find somebody else to talk to. Um, I mean, and she's just you know, I, 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 will, I will contemplate something for two hours and then let you know what I think about it. You know, my wife and my son will let you know what they think about it and then go contemplate uh, what, what, they, what they want to say. Anyway, when, when, um, I was, when my kids were young, Caleb was probably six. Elizabeth was probably eight and a half. I'm cooking dinner one night. And um, Elizabeth, oldest, like me, comes in and asks if she can have a cookie. And even though I was cooking dinner, you know how dads are with daughters. I'd have given her anything she wanted. Um, I said, sure. And she um, pulled the chair up to the counter, got a cookie. Well, and then went back to the back of the house. Well, in a little bit, here comes Caleb bouncing along, just as hard as he can go. On that chair, up on the counter, grabbing the cookies. And I said, Caleb, um, do you need to ask me something? And, he's, and his answer was, well, Elizabeth got a cookie. My answer was, you're not Elizabeth. And he shot right back at me, well, you're not God. <laughs> and I shot right back, as far as you're concerned, young man, in this house. I didn't use the word vicar of Christ because I assumed he didn't know it. But I did use the word representative of Christ. I'm the vicar of Christ or the representative of Christ in this house. But um, anyway, the law can make you sin. 
I mean, as soon as you lay the law down, it's just something about human nature. Makes you want to break it. And that's what Paul says here. When he says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Um, And so he's finally finished his argument. Here comes the climax. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory, Nike, Nike, gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, being a, a good preacher, now that he's given you this amazing theology, he's going to give you one verse of application. What do you do with this? Besides, you know, know the answer on Jeopardy. What do you do with this? Therefore, in light of all that I've said, and he certainly means all that he said in chapter 15. He may mean all that he said in all of 1 Corinthians. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain knowing that in the Lord what you do is not useless. You could even maybe, to get at what Paul means here, you could even say knowing that in the Lord what you do for the Lord here and now has eternal consequences. I mean, particularly in light of the context. He's talking about the end of history. He's talking about how Christ is going to wrap up history for the sake of God. So he's saying, you know, just just stay true, stay steadfast and movable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor... Uh, it's never in vain. Uh, it has um, consequences. It's never in vain. So that really is the end of First Corinthians, just for fun. Um, I, you know, a lot of people skip the final chapters of Paul's letters because it looks like just practical stuff. But I love them because you get a wonderful picture of, of his life. Uh, let me just... To conclude, look at the first four verses of chapter 16. And again, keep in mind, these numbers, Paul didn't put them in here. Uh, these numbers were put in in the late Middle Ages so that we could find t- verses quicker. So what amazes me is Paul just hit the height, the height of Christian theology, the coming of the kingdom. Uh, what's going to happen at the end? What's going to happen in the coming of the kingdom? And then, again, these numbers aren't here, so you know you're turning. We call it a new chapter. The people who are hearing this in Corinth, they just keep reading. Um, notice what Paul then starts talking about as he begins to wrap up the book. Now, concerning the collection, concerning the offering for the saints, uh, I've had people in my churches who thought preachers weren't not supposed to talk about money. Um, Jesus said more about what we do with our money than he said about prayer. Paul, Paul talks about it too. So he goes from the resurrection of the body to now concerning the collection for the saints. But I want you to notice this collection he's talking about. There's a couple of interesting pieces of information here. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches at Galatia, member of the book of Galatians, Galatia is modern-day Turkey. Um, he, He planted churches in Galatia. You can go back and read Galatians. But in in Galatians chapter 2, one of the things he told those folks in Galatia, those were Gentiles there in Turkey, just like in Greece. One of the things he told them was that one of the things he was passionate about doing was to raise an an offering, uh, to raise a collection for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. 
So he told them that in Galatia. He's telling them the same thing in Corinth. Notice what he says. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed, as I told the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. He's going to pass the offering plate at Corinth just like he did in Galatia. He's saying, I'm, going to, I'm telling you the same thing. Look at verse 2. A startling verse. The, first, the oldest account of this happening on the first day of the week. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. On the first day of the week. The Sabbath is what day of the week to the Jews? Seventh day of the week. You know, when somebody, well, those people that knock at your door, and they come in pairs, one of the things they may get around to is saying to you, this Sunday thing you're doing, making Sunday your Sabbath, making Sunday your worship day, uh, the Roman Catholic Caesar made you do that in the fourth century. Pull your Bible out. Um, there are three instances in the New Testament where you see in the New Testament that before the New Testament is finished, we are already worshiping on what day of the week? First day of the week. We moved our worship day from the seventh day, the Jewish Sabbath, to the first day. Why? What's Paul been talking about? Resurrection. Uh, that's why we call Sunday, by the way, Sunday's a pagan term. We all use it so we don't confuse each other. Um, we don't worship the sun, but that's a pagan term. But in the Christian community, what we call Sunday is, is called in the New Testament, the Lord's Day. It's the day that marks resurrection. It's the day that marks Easter. Every Sunday, every time we come together on Sunday, is a little Easter. So we real quickly shifted to the first day of the week. So, yeah, it wasn't some Roman emperor in the 4th century making you do this. We, we shifted to the first day of the week. Already, this is the oldest account because Paul's, Paul's writings are older than the Gospels and certainly older than the book of Acts and the, and the book of Revelation. But uh, that's why this is the oldest account where you see pretty quickly we made a big deal out of this Sunday thing because our, our, our Savior got up and walked uh, from, from, the, from the dead on that Sunday morning. So we shifted our worship day. Now, probably what was going on in, in the Jewish church in Jerusalem, they were keeping Jewish Sabbath and keeping the Lord's Day. Sound like a great idea to me, but that's probably what was going on. But we started keeping first day of the week quickly. So Paul's saying here, every time you come together on the first day of the week, as you're obviously doing for your worship, uh, take your collection up so that when I come, I can have more time to preach. You don't have to take up my time passing an offering plate. So he says, go ahead on the first day of the week, start laying your collection aside. Notice what he says to put aside. To put aside, put something, something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Now, you know, part of me wishes Paul could have helped us out by saying, church, put up 90% of what you made for the work of the Lord. I mean, that would excite a lot of preachers. Um, Paul didn't say that. He doesn't even say tithe, by the way. He says, put up something, put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. It's dependent upon what you make is what you give uh, and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Uh, the New Testament concept, we're not opposed to tithe. 
the 10%. In the Jewish world, they actually had three tithes that would amount to about 25% of their income, but they had to keep up the state of Israel. They had to keep up the temple. So we Christians don't just talk about tithe. Sometimes we talk about tithe and offerings. I mean, if the Old Testament folks did tithe, we ought to do more. We've got more. We, we've experienced more in Christ. But the reason the Christian community, we don't mind tithe, because part of what you see Paul saying here, um, you know, this giving, this giving according to what you've made, and the planning of your giving, Paul's telling them to plan their giving, don't wait till he shows up in town and say, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to have done something. Uh, plan your giving in advance, be intentional, all that's great stuff. What you have to be careful about to tithe is this. Um, I know, I've known people in my churches that could give 10%, never miss it. Would not impact their lifestyle at all. I've known people who give 1% and it was a sacrifice. What, what is really the New Testament teaching on giving is equal sacrifice. Yeah, we need to sacrifice for the sake of, of the Lord's work. That would be different for each one of us. And that's why Paul says, as he says here, he doesn't talk about tithing. He just talks about laying it aside, lay something aside according to how you've prospered. Um, let it be the first fruits. Don't let it be your leftovers. That's, that's biblical. Uh, let it be the first fruit because planning your giving is obviously important. Paul's going to talk a lot about this topic, by the way, in 2 Corinthians. But planning your giving is very significant. So he's telling them all about the giving. And I think we need to kind of repeat this occasionally in the body of Christ. He's teaching about giving. But I want you to notice, because this is important, what is this offering for? And what is he doing with this offering? Because this is a beautiful piece of New Testament. Notice why he says, verse 3 and 4. And when I arrive, I will, send the, I will send those whom you accredit, those whom you support, those whom you tell me by letter to carry your gift where? To Jerusalem. Uh, he's saying, I'm not touching your money. I, another good spiritual principle. I don't touch your money. You know, if you if if I, literally if the, if somebody doesn't take the money on Sunday morning off the altar of the church, I will call somebody to come get it. I'm not touching it. Um, and I've done that before. Uh, so Paul says, you know, whoever you send, whoever you appoint, whoever you accredit, will will will, will, will transport the money. And they're to transport the money to Jerusalem. I'll come back to Jerusalem, verse four. If it seems advisable that I should go also, I'll go with them. So he's, he's, he's saying, I, I will go with them, but I'm not going to be in charge of the money. I'll go with them if it seems advisable as, as they take the money where? Jerusalem. They're collecting it in Greece. They're collecting it in Galatia. He's taking it where? Jerusalem. So look at what Paul's doing. Paul is not just... Jerusalem is a small city. It's packed. You know that from being in the old old city of Jerusalem. Um, in, in not long before the time of Paul, they had famine. Uh, there, there was a lot, a lot of poverty in Jerusalem. So Paul is a smart man. Paul is this, is this Christian apostle to the... He's a Jew taking the Jewish... the new way of being Jewish from Jerusalem to the Gentile world. And he has figured out a way to link them. He has figured out a way to unite the non-Jewish Christians with the Jewish Christians. You see how he's doing it. 
He's everywhere he's going in Galatia and, and uh, Greece, he's collecting an offering that will be taken back to the poor Christian Jews, Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So he's doing a beautiful thing, but it's very central to who Paul is. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, but he's not kicking the Jewish Christians to the curb. Uh, we need to be very grateful for our, the Jewishness of our faith. We need to be very grateful um, to, the, to our Jewish brothers and sisters. One of the many reasons I'm passionate about travel to Israel, we need to be very grateful for them, and we need to support them and encourage them. Uh, but Paul did that. Paul is making Gentiles and Jews uh, do something practical to make sure that the Gentiles over there in Greece and Turkey are doing something for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So that's a fascinating thing. So that is a good stopping point at 16.4.